a conversation that is long overdue is finally being had. I'm speaking about the conversation on sexual violence. We as a culture have long ignored this topic, and now that it is in the media, we must make sure it continues. Healing courage, support for survivors of sexual violence. That's our topic here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. Since the hashtag MeToo movement began last year, the topic of sexual violence has finally become a part of our public focus. Today we want to dive deeper into this much-needed conversation. We're speaking with a leader in this movement, a woman that will help us understand the forms of sexual violence, what the individual path of healing from such trauma often looks like, the importance of identifying as a survivor rather than a victim, and what support is available for survivors. And we won't stop there. I feel strongly that this conversation is not a topic shared just amongst women, but that the conversation must include us as men as well. How can we expand the current conversation and make sure it is not simply a media focus for a few months, but will stay as an ongoing theme about the healing that needs to happen in our society? Healing courage, support for survivors of sexual violence. All that and more coming up in just a minute here today on An Organic Conversation. I'm your host, Helge Helberg, and this show is made possible by Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Our topic in this hour is healing courage. Support for Survivors of Sexual Violence. A much-needed conversation, and we are speaking with the perfect person, Stephanie Burns, the founder and director of Healing Courage. She's joining us today from Port Townsend, Washington. Stephanie, do we have you on the line? I'm here, Helga. Thank you for making time. We just launched HealingCourage.org, a new organization, new and old. You have been in the trenches mm -hmm. to create this and in the trenches of educating and helping survivors of sexual violence for, for many, many years. But I want to talk about the, the topic of sexual violence 
in itself first that finally it has become public um, last year it really broke in the media it, is it a time to celebrate for you right now in the face of such trauma are you celebrating or how do you see this after so many years of you working on this um, finally being public I think that's a really great question, Helga, and an important one. I think it's time to do many things, one of which is to acknowledge and honor uh, the survivors, the allies and activists, the organizations, the agencies who came before us and on whose shoulders we stand. This topic, while it may have, as you said, broke um, publicly in the media, is not a new conversation for those individuals nor the millions of survivors throughout the U.S. But I think what is new is who is listening to this conversation and who is mm. elevating these voices. And it's those individuals who have power and privilege and influence. Um, because this topic has been public. It has been in the news for generations, for decades. But it is reaching a new level of uh, attention and awareness. So for you, who has been working on this topic, is this again a time for you to celebrate? Are you happy that it's finally in a way out in the public being discussed? Or is there concern at the same time? I love that question. I, I think really because rarely do we hear the concept of celebrating and survivors in the same sentence, the same idea or, or, or content or context. Yes. I want to shift how we look at survivors. Um, we celebrate survivors of all sorts of traumatic human experiences, whether it be war or cancer. But we celebrate those survivors in a much different different way than we do survivors of sexual violence. And so I, I do, like I said, I want to shift that. Um, and as as our, our creative director of Healing Courage says, it's time to get to work. And I couldn't agree more with that. We're at a pivotal point in our history with regards to sexual violence, but we still have long and, and hard road ahead of us. Talk about you for a minute, um, if, if we may. You have been an educator independently of sexual violence, but you've kind of dedicated your life to assisting others finding a better way on how to manage life and in itself. And kind of on the side or at the same time, you had support organizations or you, you de were dedicating your work uh, to creating an infrastructure of support for survivors of sexual violence. What's the connection there, and and how did you get into this work? Um, it stems, I think, from a couple of, of different places and, and personal experiences. Um, you know, I, I actually just recently was at a, a professional conference for educators, and I shared with, with some individuals that, you know, I wasn't in education to teach. I'm in education to allow and support our um, our youth and our young adults to show up for who they are and what they come with and their experiences, whatever that might mean, socially, academically, culturally, and otherwise. And so I think because of my own experiences around trauma, that really is what drives that, that commitment for me in green spaces and communities where People can be seen and heard, and they can show up for who they are um, and embraced in that way and, and, and honored and celebrated in that way. Much like I know in your work, you're celebrating survivors. Yes. Yes. Like I said, um, I, I really want to shift at the, the societal response and the culture around sexual violence 
um, that was that was actually a huge impetus for for me in, in creating Surviving and Thriving initially and now Healing Courage um, was just the misunderstanding around what sexual violence is, the trauma that it causes, what it takes to, to heal from that, um, and, and the, the long-term consequences of that. Healing Courage, Support for Survivors of Sexual Violence. That's our topic in this hour of An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm speaking with Stephanie Burns, the founder and director of Healing Courage. That's healingcourage.org. She's joining us today from Port Townsend, Washington. Without going too much into detail or as much as you like, can you share your your personal experience with sexual violence? Which part of it? <laughs> um, you know, that that's such an interesting question because, you know, as someone who has, has been a sort of self um old survivor and thriver for you know almost almost two decades you know there's it is a very long road um i i i have not ever publicly shared the details of of my experiences of my um sexual trauma and part of that is because it's it's really personal but it's also because too often i feel like survivors have to carry the burden of proving, you know, how violent or how traumatic their experiences were when the fact that it was a violation should be enough. Um, with that said, though, I, I have shared um, that I am a survivor. Um, I am unique in that I pretty immediately reported my sexual assault to, uh, to law enforcement. But I'm not unique in that I knew my perpetrator. You know, there are, I would say, you know, almost 80% of survivors know their perpetrators. And that adds another, I think, layer of complexity that is not always understood in terms of how this trauma affects us personally, but also how it affects our, our spheres of community and family and work and beyond that. Um, so you're saying have, you, um, you're saying eight zero eighty percent of of survivors of sexual violence know their perpetrator. Yes, it's usually um, an acquaintance or a family member or a partner. That's so different than the picture that is kind of being portrayed, or at least the way I understood it from the media of in in my youth. Um, at least rape was usually the man in the bush, you know, who jumps at you and creates sexual violence, but that it's it's not a family member, it's not a workplace situation. You're saying by the vast majority of sexual violence cases in, in various forms are actually known social contacts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is one of those, I think, misunderstandings and, or misconceptions that leads to misunderstandings about what this is. Because when you are in a place where, for all intents and purposes, it is a safe place and that's violated, um, that really has long-term uh, consequences physically, emotionally, and socially. And that is what a lot of survivors um, are faced with. And it's not to say that the survivors who do experience sexual violence at the hands of a stranger, also do not, um, you know, still experiences those consequences. Mm -hmm. But when it is somebody that's known to you, that you, you know, are, that you trust and that's violated, 
um, that's a very deep violation that occurs there. And therefore, a deeper healing is required. And it seems like it's an it's immediately another conflict, right? Isn't the the question if it was somebody you knew, and especially if it's a family member, would you want to report that even because you know this is already harm on the family, and reporting it, you might you know do something that is critical for yourself that you absolutely must do, but the 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 thought or the doubt that you're hurting the family further must be automatically a part of it or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of one of the things I struggled with and, and I know um, a lot of survivors struggle with as well is, is exactly that is damaging the our networks, our mm -hmm. support networks yeah. by bringing something like this into that. Or putting shame on the family publicly even though it was not our fault. Yeah, feeling that responsibility within the pain on top of it is is just an extra burden i can mm -hmm. i can imagine yeah and that that's a big fear for survivors is when they come out how they're going to be responded to and how they're going to be um, uh, treated as a result of sharing this and as we've seen um, historically survivors are are not treated well they are not you know embraced for the courage and the strength that it takes to you know, not just survive something like that, but thrive. And so, you know, as a survivor, when you go through that experience, there's that question of, A, is somebody, you know, am I going to be believed? And regardless, am I going to be believed? How, how, how will I be responded to? Mm -hmm. um, we see that over and over and over that we're made out, you know, as the, as the criminals um, in this, in this experience. There's a lot of victim blaming and shaming, as you said. Yes, and hopefully that is finally changing. But can you walk us through kind of a, a rough timeline of healing, um, or at least a, a timeline of which people go through that are um, survivors? You, the the violence happens, and then there's the first phase of you mentioned that first responders, which is what law enforcement or how does that when you report it? Um, what's that? Mm -hmm. What's that area? You know that. That's It's often looked at as sort of the crisis or the acute phase. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that is that sort of that first place that, that you go to where you are um, literally in a, in a trauma response. Um, many survivors are diagnosed with, with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder mm -hmm. um, as a result of, of these crimes. And so that is that sort of initial acute um, or crisis, crisis phase. And that could be hours or days or weeks even still, but... Uh, you're you're in in a state of shock, of course, and it's mm -hmm. that immediate phase. How was your experience in that phase? Um, I I you know before I share kind of my my experience, I think it's also important to uh, to just acknowledge a couple of things. I think one, while we might be talking about this almost in a linear way, the the road you know to healing is is anything but linear. Mm -hmm. um, And so I think it's important to say that. And, and I think, as you've already mentioned, too, it, it can last weeks or months um, or years in terms of that healing process. And that's, that's something to take into consideration because that really does um, affect how we look at survivors and what it is that they are, they are dealing with. Um, yeah, I wasn't even re relating to the healing process uh, that may mm. take years. I was just talking about the crisis part that could be mm -hmm. hours or days or even weeks. 
where the active trauma or, or shock is still in place. And mm-hmm. we you don't need to share how that experience was for you, but what is your what is your experience overall being in this movement and in this work of of that phase? How well are people educated? How does law enforcement get trained on how to deal with it? How are we doing as a society around that immediate response crisis? I think we, like a lot of the things surrounding sexual violence and, and trauma, we have a long way to go. Um, I think the because of what I mentioned before, the misunderstandings or misconceptions of what trauma is and then actually what trauma is and does to um, our bodies and our minds, they, they don't always match up. So, for example, um, a survivor who is, is, might have um, experienced a sexual trauma and, you know, like myself, will go and report um, to law enforcement. We might show up and we might not be um, showing signs of what somebody would expect a survivor of sexual violence um, would, would look like or mm-hmm. act yeah. like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, you know, I was very, um, I was actually very calm. I was very quiet. But that for me was the manifestation of the shock and uh, that I was experiencing and feeling. But I think to somebody in law enforcement, that's interpreted as, well, they're, they're, this doesn't make any sense. They just went through an incredibly traumatic event, um, a, you know, a very violent event. And they're not, you know, they're not, Mm-hmm. manifesting yeah. symptoms that I would expect. Um, the other thing that happens is that trauma kind of scrambles your memories. And so while you are recounting um, an experience, it might not chronologically be linear. There are sort of these fragmented pieces that you're able to um, talk about, but maybe not in a logical, sort of linear, yeah. Uh-huh. linear, yeah, yeah uh-huh. logical way. That, that's also very... Um, you know, confusing and, and make somebody think that, that you're not telling telling the truth. Um, you know, there have been experiences that survivors have have shared that if when given just a moment or two to to sort of collect themselves and and sit without being um, peppered with questions, that that actually helps a lot. You know, it's interesting in law enforcement when when law enforcement shoot somebody, they, they, they take somebody, um, take somebody's life um, in the line of duty. There's a lot of law enforcement and police agencies will have a policy where that person, before they are questioned, they have an, a day where they take, um, it's sort of a, a, a leave, leave of absence day. And then that person comes back and it's recognizing that that experience can be very traumatic. For That's the officer, you're saying, right? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the officer. Mm-hmm. Um, that while that concept is almost identical to the trauma that a survivor of sexual violence will experience, um, it's not the same practice that we right, experience. Right. Who's, who's then asked within hours, perhaps, of the attack to share mm-hmm. concisively what happened? And what is the next phase that follows the immediate crisis phase? You know, my experience, I, I was, I sort of went into a place where I did not, I wanted to forget that it happened. Mm-hmm. You know, call it denial, call it trying to move on with your life, as so many people tell you, you know, in response to, to hearing what your experience is. And that was, that was very true for me, was really wanting to um, just 
get on with my life. And, you know, I used to talk about taking that, just this experience and being able to separate it from all my other life experiences and, and put it in a box. But that's not possible. And my experience in that time was a lot of start and stops. I often refer to this concept of a spiral of healing. And in that way, it's almost as if you're taking two steps forward and 10 steps back and two steps forward. And it's, you know, again, going back to that idea that it's not linear. And there are times where you don't feel like you're making any forward progress or forward forward movement, even though even though you are. Um, that really is the trauma. That's the PTSD that your body is its best um, to heal from. How, how would you name that phase? There's the crisis phase, and then one enters into uh, denial, depression, wanting to forget about it um, phase of that is part of the healing process. I mean, there's these six, seven, eight steps of what we do with trauma anyway, blame, denial, anger, um, all those phases of, of loss or grief apply in one way or another to trauma as well. How do you call that that phase? And how long does that can that last? It really, it really depends on the survivor. Um, I think it You know, every survivor's experience and healing is different. And what impacts that is how when they disclose or how when they share that, how are they responded to? Mm-hmm. How are they supported? What are the what are the resources that are available to them? Um, what are their support networks? I think there's, um, you know, there's a lot of, of sort of different factors and variables that, that go go into that for survivors. And then there's, of course, the third phase, which is, I believe, called integration. And that is what Healing Courage is focused on, the organization that you just launched. We're speaking with Stephanie Burns, the founder and director of Healing Courage. That's healingcourage.org. In this hour of an organic conversation, Healing Courage, support for survivors of sexual violence. Stephanie, we need to take a quick break, but please stay on the line and we'll be right back with so much more. I'm Helga Helberg. This is an organic conversation. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Healing courage, support for survivors of sexual violence. That's our topic in this hour, this week. And we're speaking with Stephanie Burns, who's joining us from Port Townsend, Washington. She's the founder and director of Healing Courage, healingcourage.org, the website. And right before the break, Stephanie, we were talking about the first and second phase of healing, if it can even be, since it's not a linear process, grouped in those phases. But there is a distinct uh, moment in the 
process of healing that a survivor goes through that you have identified and that is, I, I believe, now identified in in research and in literature. Um, healing Courage, your, your new organization, really focused as a support organization, of course, for any part of the healing process, but particularly for the the third phase. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I you know, this came out of out of my own personal experience of not um, not seeing a, a place where, you know, where I could go that where I was sort of honored and celebrated for for my courage and my strength and my grace as a survivor. Like I said before, you know, we celebrate survivors of all sorts of uh, traumatic human experiences, but it was very different as a survivor of sexual assault. And at a certain point in my healing, when I was ready um, to be more public about it and to be sharing it, um, there wasn't that Platform. Um, place that, yeah. ex mm -hmm. that existed. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, I was really ready to integrate it as part of, of who I was and my experiences. And so that was, you know, that was part of the, the inspiration for, you know, for Healing Courage. And what is Healing Courage? What what did you create in order to make sure that that happens, that there is a place and a platform where people who have healed or are healing their courage to to now say, this is a part of me, this happened, I don't like that it happened, it's terrible, and yet it did happen, and I'm I'm no longer denying it. And with that, there's the chance to live with it and to celebrate the courage that it takes to live with it. What does what does healing courage do and provide? Yeah, you know, I like to I like to think of healing courage as, as as more than than an organization. For me, it's it's a it's a it's a couple of different things. It's an opportunity, and and like you said, a platform for the deeper conversations and education mm -hmm. around the long term consequences and the long term healing for sexual violence. It's a community of survivors and allies and activists who are committed to shifting the culture um, of sexual violence that is incredibly pervasive and persists in our society. And it's, you know, also as importantly, a place for survivors to connect, um, to learn, to heal, to be seen and heard, and most importantly, to be valid validated, um, which for me is a huge part of the healing process of being seen and heard. Um, we really do heal in the presence of others. And I've had very powerful experiences throughout my healing where that was um, apparent to me and became very obvious of, while as much of that deep personal work that I did on my own, I needed the community and the validation and somebody to bear witness To my pain and my suffering and my journey, in order to help me move through that process and to integrate that into who I was um, and and what I stood for. And that happened in your case through a support group or through somebody acknowledging it, or what? What? What are those moments in the life of a survivor where you feel, wow, okay, I, this is a moment that is so precious because I feel seen and heard. And trusted and believed for the first time. So there were, uh, I think, for me, you know, several moments throughout my healing where I, I felt support and community from other individuals. And there are two in particular that really come to mind for me. I think the first one was, you know, in starting surviving in high 
and Thriving, which was the predecessor to Healing Courage, that first year in 2010, um, standing on stage, introducing myself and saying, you know, my name is Stephanie Burns. I'm a survivor and a thriver. And being, you know, being celebrated and honored in that way and being literally seen and heard was incredibly powerful. And that was a new, you know, what I would call bend around that spiral in my own healing mm-hmm. of having that experience. Beautiful. Um, I think I think the second one was I had the experience where my rapist sister um, apologized to me. She said to me, um, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. We never meant to hurt you. And again, it was that continuation of that validation and that being seen and being heard um, that was incredibly powerful and effective for me and really helped continue to shape my view of what this experience is like and what survivors really need in terms of what they go through in that experience. Is is that the most validating thing to hear for a survivor if somebody says, I believe you? Or what, what for for somebody who wants to support a survivor, what would that be? I think there are a lot of things that you can say, you know, to somebody. You can say, thank you for trusting me, you know, with what you just shared. You can say, I'm I'm sorry to hear that you've you experienced that and I'm sorry that you went went through that. You can say, you know, I'm I'm here for you to listen and support. You know, what is it that you need? And and yes, being having somebody say to you, you know, I believe you is incredibly powerful. I want to talk about for a second about the the organizational needs that you have. I heard a crazy statistic that there are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of rape kits who can who could potentially close a case uh, not being being dealt with because of funding issues did I did I understand that right yes there is there is um, a lot of news um, or a lot of news in the media right now regarding rape kits you know I can only guess that it is you know a, a, a result of the culture that we have around sexual violence and it not being seen as something that is a priority in terms of you know, really going through the evidence and, and finding, you know, you hear a lot about with sexual violence of, oh, there's not enough evidence. Um, it is the most underreported crime, but it's also the, the, the least prosecuted crime that exists in our society. So when it comes to funding, public funding, or now being the founder and director of Healing Courage, again, healingcourage.org, the website, What is the financial picture for for the landscape of support for survivors of sexual violence? I think that for me is one of the the most disappointing things about being being a survivor and and the most challenging is you know how how expensive it is to be a survivor and how costly it is to heal. It is one of the major barriers. To, to healing are the financial barriers. What do you exist. What do you mean by that? Can you Can you explain? By that I mean the financial. There's There's a physical toll and an emotional toll, but there's also a financial toll on being a survivor. Right. I, I, but not, how is that comprised? Like what, what? When you say it's expensive to be a survivor, where are the costs? The costs uh, are in um, potentially, 
you know, having having access or not having access to therapy. Mm-hmm. So therapy is something that is incredibly um, costly. You know, if you want to see a therapist, a private therapist, it's, you know, you're talking $100, $200 per session. Um, there are agencies and organizations that exist in local communities that do provide um, more cost-effective opportunities. However, the wait list for those are incredibly long. Um, as you can imagine, there's you know 18 million plus survivors that exist in the U.S. alone. So we, there are not the resources that mm-hmm. exist to support that kind of um, population. Yeah, and I can only imagine if you have a trauma, your productivity at your job might go down dramatically, or you might even not be able to perform your job for a few weeks or a few months. So there might be an, an income loss. Is that something you see as well? Absolutely. You know, income loss in terms of being able to move ahead in your career um, because of the the emotional and, and physical impacts of, of this crime. Yes, absolutely. We're almost out of time, but I do want to get into the the conversation itself. As a man, for me, the topic of sexual violence is not a conversation just amongst women. Actually, without wanting to take it away by any means um, as to be celebrated when you are a survivor of sexual violence. Sexual violence is uh, a, a topic amongst men as well. It needs to be. Uh, would you as a woman agree? Is that is that what's needed now as well? Um, yes, I, I would agree that it's not a woman's issue. And I would also say that it's not a man's issue. I would say that it's a community issue. It's it's a it's a humanity issue because sexual violence does not discriminate whether it's around gender or race or ethnicity or orientation. And, and our most vulnerable populations are often the ones that are most at risk. Um, so children, you know, young adults and TGQN populations, which is transgender, genderqueer, nonconforming, populations. And so it's even a bigger issue than just a men's and a woman's issue. Isn't there a statistic, though, that most, and maybe that's totally wrong, maybe that's a misconception that's important to talk about, that most acts of sexual violence are done by male perpetrators? Yes. Most acts of perpetration are done um, by male perpetrators, correct. But you're saying still it is not a topic where it's about women or men, how would society, what would that change if, if society continues to embrace this conversation? What, what are you hoping for? I think I'm, I'm hoping for a, an acknowledgement of the needs of survivors and understanding of, of who this affects and how it affects it and who are perpetrating those crimes. Like you said, there's, you know, it's mostly perpetrated by men, which is true, but at the same time, it's also perpetrated by people that survivors know And so really looking at that and then therefore finding long-term solutions um, and ones that are really based in evidence. You know, there's a lot of evidence-based research out there that, that we're seeing sort of what, what works and what doesn't work, not only in terms of supporting survivors, but also in, in, you know, in terms of the criminal mm-hmm. justice system and what's working and what's not. So I think it's that combination of the education around the long-term consequences as well as, as the um, the solutions that match those those experiences around those long-term consequences. 
If people listen to this episode and want to support your work, um, can they do that? Do you take contributions and support for your work on your website? Or what's the best way if somebody wants to get involved? Yes, absolutely. We do have a website, killingcourage.org. And you can go to that website and there's a way to donate. There's also a way to get involved, whether it be through volunteering or if you're a provider of services, because we really want to work with um, communities across the across the U.S. and in helping shift um, shift the culture around around survivors and the support and the, the acknowledgement that they receive. And I would say also too, you know, one of the biggest ways that you can support and make a difference besides donating to organizations like ours is, you know, is not is is engaging in these conversations. Yes. You know, they can be really, really tough conversations, but engaging in those conversations. And, and if you do have survivors in your life or whether or not you know it, you probably do remember how, how important that, that care and that compassion um, and that validation is for those survivors, because it really will, um, it really has possibility or potential to change the trajectory of, uh, of, of their healing. Nice. And if you, our listeners, are inclined to contribute or support this work, um, again, healingcourage.org, online donations are possible. And that is Stephanie Burns, the founder and director of Healing Courage. Healing Courage support for survivors of sexual violence, our focus in this hour here on An Organic Conversation. Uh, Stephanie, best of luck to your work. It's so critical right now, as it always has been. And now it has the chance to really transform us it's a great gift that you're doing what you're doing not just for survivors of sexual violence because we're all affected in one way or another um, thank you for your work thank you for your time and um, we'll have you back soon thank you so much Helga I appreciate it And we are changing our focus. Coming up next is the update from the produce doc on what is in season this week, how to buy it, how to choose it, how to store it, and what to do with it, the consumer segment on how to save money and know what's going on in your produce department on your retail shelf. Here is what's in season. And with me now is the Latin lover of produce, Rodrigo Velasquez, one of Earl's top buyers at Earl's Organic. Instead of Earl Herrick, we have his entire crew in the last weeks, and I'm so thrilled to now have Rodrigo back. Rodrigo, do we have you on the line? Hi, Helga. Yeah, <laughs> I'm here. Uh, good to have you. Um, it's an exciting time right now. We're in mid-May. And I can imagine how domestic local produce is just coming in left and right. What is your focus right now? What's your what's your item of the week? I would like to talk today about the import apples from the southern hemisphere. 
Oh, import apples. That means already fresh crop versus storage, which we have been enjoying throughout the winter. That is correct. Um, apples in the southern hemisphere are right now at the peak. Oh, and yeah, I would like of to course. Talk to you and uh, you know everybody about it. So that's meaning what they're in September, October equivalent. They're they're on the other side of the. So May would be yeah October, right? October, November, maybe. Exactly. So you can uh, add or subtract six months, and it's, it's going to give you an idea of the equivalent to our season. Oh, how interesting. Let me ask, I was at Woodlands Market. It's a family-owned business in, in throughout the San Francisco Bay Area, Marin County, and had some really nice pink ladies, and I believe you guys delivered them. Um, were those storage, or were those already a new fresh crop from the Southern Hemisphere? Those are storage apples and uh, you know every apple tends to be its own world and behave in a different uh, in a different way uh -huh. so you are doing the right thing for buying you know when buying a storage pink lady because pink lady is one of uh, the very few varieties uh, maybe the only one grown commercially that actually is better off when it's uh, out of storage believe it or not than Bet fresh. Better off the, than fresh? Really? Why would that be? Because it converts starches to sugars at a very, very slow rate. <sighs> Now, for the 99% of the other varieties of apples, um, if you really want to have a very good experience when buying apples, um, you should consider a, a new crop, a fresh southern hemisphere, um, either from Chile Argentina or New Zealand that they are now uh, we see them now around here in the in the stores in the Bay Area. Amazing. How would you know? How would one know? I mean, I, I just looked at the apples and the honestly, the pink ladies looked firm and shiny and fresh and the energy seemed good. And um, they had just come in. They almost looked like a fresh apple to me. So they must be storing really, really well. Um, but how would the consumer know if they're getting a fresh or a storage product? Um, at this time of the year, you know, now that we're in May, um, I will look at the country of origin. Um, you know, the, the produce industry in general, and the organic in particular, is very transparent. And every fruit, every single apple uh, has to say where is that apple from, where it was grown. Hmm. And uh, you're going to see a variety of some still, some uh, um, old crop storage apples, And uh, among them, again, Pink Lady is one that remains very good. And then you're going to see some, maybe somebody will still have some uh, gala that was harvested maybe eight months ago or seven months ago. And uh, you're going to see that that is still is a, is a domestic um, apple. And probably the experience is not going to be the same as if you um, bite into a new crop from Chile or New Zealand. So I would say the easiest way to know It's just by the country of origin. Uh, being in May, if it's from uh, any country on the southern hemisphere, it will be a fresh. new, mm -hmm. a fresh, uh, new crop, fresh apple. If it's uh, here domestic, it's all crop from storage. And how do they behave at home, or what would you do? Usually, there's this: if it has been in storage, you want to kind of keep it in storage. Meaning, if you don't eat the apple, in this case, the pink lady, right away. Um, it will it will catch up on its decay, so to say, having been in storage. You want to keep it in the fridge or eat it immediately. Is that still true, or is it stored so well that 
it basically behaves like a fresh apple. No, it definitely has a, a storage apple, definitely has a shorter shelf life. Um, now, apples have something that is absolutely unique to them, and one of the reasons why they are so popular is that uh, nature gave them their own very good package. Uh, it's a fruit that you can just throw in your backpack or throw in your bag mm. and take it with you anywhere you go. Yeah. Um, so, you know, even though both will hold for, for, you know, probably a day, no problem, uh, a fresh apple will remain intact for longer, and a storage apple will start losing um, pressure very soon, and then, you know, develop in decay. So uh, the, the storage will stop time for, you know, for kind of stops time for, for, for a while, but after that, uh, yeah, it, that storage apple will uh, naturally start behaving uh, the way it should be, you know, after so many months. Nice. Yeah, so the sticker is one, or knowing the varieties. Pink ladies right now, um, most likely storage, uh, is definitely if the sticker says product of the U.S. But what varieties are we seeing that are coming in from the southern hemispheres? Okay, so one of the varieties that is very popular is the Royal Gala. And it's a variety mm-hmm. that was developed in New Zealand and grows really well there, and, but also grows really well in Chile. And uh, remember, New Zealand and Chile and Argentina, they have a very, very similar um, climate. climate. Mm-hmm. They, they, it's, uh, it, it mimics what we see in the north, northern hemisphere at the same latitude. Uh, there's not, there are not too many countries uh, in that latitude, that south, so that's why we don't see uh, a big number of, uh, you know, producers. So good varieties, I will go with the Royal Gala, that um, it's, uh, it actually is, is better, I would say, you know, uh, that the, the one from the Southern Hemisphere, and I hope my friends from Washington are not listening right now. I would say it's better. It's better than uh, one from Washington. Uh, there's something about that variety that since it was developed there. Uh, that's that's really well. Um, because of I why do you think that is the soil or the the climate or both? It's uh, you know remember that the southern hemisphere um, winters are milder uh-huh, than the true, northern hemisphere, totally, yeah. and summers and summers are are not as hot. Yeah, because uh, the Earth uh, is not a, a perfect circle around the, the sun; it's yes. an ellipse. So, and the inclination of the Earth and being ellipsed makes that the winters are uh, milder <laughs> and the summers are not as hot as we have it here in the Northern Hemisphere. That's amazing that uh, a produce expert at Earl's talks about the elliptic way the Earth uh, travels around the sun and how that uh, impacts gala apples from Argentina. Wow, we've come far, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we want to get to the root of why is it, you know, why is it really if it's the same variety and sometimes the same, uh, you know, uh, latitude in the uh, same soil, why is it that it still behaves differently? And there you go. That is, a, is an explanation wow. for you. Remember, plants don't like change, and uh, any change is, is no welcome for them. Uh-huh. Uh, unlike humans, you know, we like change <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. So, <laughs> other varieties? Uh-huh. Yeah, go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. no, no, no. Other varieties, exactly. That would be my next question, too. Um, the, definitely the Granny Smith, that it doesn't seem like a, you know, a very exciting variety, but Granny Smith cannot hold in storage very well for too long. Mm-hmm. And what happened is that there's a discoloration that uh, we see in the organic production. Conventionally, they don't have that problem. That is called the scalding. That is an external discoloration that happens on the skin and uh, doesn't allow the grannies to be stored for too long. Mm-hmm. So there's really no other option if you want to enjoy a Granny Smith organically in May. 
uh, your only option will be to get one from the southern hemisphere uh, producing countries gotcha. again you know chile argentina new zealand uh, and they're all doing a great job you know they they have come a long way uh, to this point where they really produce uh, a fruit that it right. has the same quality and condition that something grown in washington beautiful yeah i remember when i was young at granny smith when you know when i was a child some 14 years ago uh was uh, really an exceptional new fantastic apple. I mean, we had our local German varieties, but a Granny Smith, a really fresh Granny Smith, was wonderful. Um, and I still think, even with all the new developments, a really good Granny Smith, it's it has its right, absolutely. And I have a couple more for you. Yeah. Uh, one is the Crips Pink, and you're going to see this variety, and you're going to be puzzled because it looks like a pink lady, but the name doesn't say Pink Lady. It mm -hmm. says Crips Pink. Is the same variety. Basically, all the growers in the Southern Hemisphere decided that they are not going to pay more money just to name it Pink Lady, and uh, they're going to stick with Crips Pink, which is the actual name of the variety. Uh, Pink Lady is just a, a marketing, marketing name. Uh -huh. Oh, cool. Good to know. And uh, that will probably be available very soon in June. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I wanted to tell you one more. Since you, you mentioned the, the apples in Germany, there's one German variety that uh, is just now, I think this is the second year or third year that it will be available, um, imported uh, from Argentina, that is, and it's the piñata apple. Mm. The piñata apple was developed in, uh, in, uh, um, uh, in Eastern Germany in the 80s, and uh, it was called, it had two names, uh, the pinova. And the Sonata, both both names, for some reason, is an apple with two names. Mm -hmm. So Pinova and Sonata, and there you go. Stemild, one of the growers in Washington, decided to call them Piñata, you know, taking the first uh, the first part of Pinova and the last part of Sonata mm -hmm. <laughs> with that name. And uh, it's, uh, it grows organically very well in Argentina. So nice. that is going to be some exciting uh, wow. new variety never that we will that. see. Yeah, never yeah. had that. We'll try that. So it was, uh, it was developed in the 80s uh, in the DDR. And um, they have some uh, very interesting um, apple um, research uh, done. And, and, and that was one of the varieties that actually made it and is grown both in Washington and Argentina. It's very wow. good. Okay. If you see one, you know, make sure you try it. I, I absolutely will. I will have Earl somehow get me one if I don't see it. But if the quantity is already enough to supply the wider Bay Area or California, or do you think it's a, it's a national product at this point? It is a national product. It's, uh -huh. uh, you're very likely to see it um, on uh, both East Coast and West Coast. And, you know, there's no um, too many things that we enjoy today in agriculture that came from uh, Eastern you know, uh, Europe from yeah. the 80s. <laughs> so, um, being, uh, you know, knowing uh, the origin of that, uh, it's, uh, you know, it gives some, uh, some more... It can give you some some more interest in the variety. That is, uh, I like it because it's a complex flavor. It's very crunchy and it has high acidity and high sugar. So oh, it's not just sweet or it's not amazing. just tart. It makes it for a very complex uh, mix of flavors. Wonderful! Oh my God, <laughs> Rodrigo, so wonderful to have you. Uh, so much knowledge. I want to do an entire hour with you, and I actually talk with Earl <laughs> about that soon. Um, and I know you often deal with tropicals as well, which we haven't covered. So that's, um, I know the Cherimoyas are coming back. So there's lots more to talk about. We'll have you back very soon. Thank you so much for your time and expertise.
You're very welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Rodrigo. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you also to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. The website is earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at An Organic Conversation and on Twitter at Talk Organic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then.